2: I walked into his room and there were dolphin statues on his windowsill and dolphin posters and in his bathroom he had a dolphin shower curtain and a dolphin toothbrush holder and <clears throat> I should have saw the signs man but then he started touching my lap one night while we were playing a game and I was like dude what are you doing and he's like dolphins man.
3: Hi, right, welcome back to Good Spirit Normal, It's your host Adam Sane, and your boy, your boy Lukey, and we got Bobby sitting in again tonight, he is uh, looking perplexed as usual,
4: I'm not sure what he means by that, <laughs> welcome, uh, welcome to my new show, <laughs>
3: <laughs> he'll get his own spin off the Bobby Church show here pretty soon, Uh But on the line, we got a uh, Conspiranormal favorite coming on now for a record fourth time on Conspiranormal, Mr. Micah Hanks. How are you doing, Micah? Hey, guys.
5: It's great to be on the program with you. I don't know why you've had me on this many times. Most people, by the second or third time, they realize this guy's going to talk the entire time. Let's just go ahead and get somebody we can actually ask questions to. But I promised to be on my best behavior tonight, so glad to be back here. A quote-unquote fourth-timer on Conspiranormal. Podcast with the best podcast name anywhere in the podcast universe.
3: Well, I kind of want to get right to it, Mike. I want to talk yeah, to you about. Appreciate uh, that, by the way. Yeah,
5: go ahead, let's hit it. Go on, let's get right down to it. Yeah, get right down to
3: the <laughs> quick. Quick
5: shout out to Yeah Boy Bobby, by the way. Yeah Boy Bobby, good to have you on the program. Okay, go ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah, Boy Bobby. Hey,
4: I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I want to thank my mama. <laughs>
5: Elvis, and Elvis, uh, Elvis, Elvis. No, 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 I just sound like you. don't And my sister's lot bright
4: that I stole from her. Right. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I can tell this is going to be a good one. one for the Adam.
3: I've been listening to your show lately, man, about like a, a month or so ago, and I was listening to it. And uh, I've had some time to kind of interact with you. I've gone to uh, Asheville twice, hung out with you. Again, you're yeah, somebody
5: who doesn't have enough, you know, to do with his spare time, and yet,
3: right, right, right. You come,
5: of, of all the places you could go, you come to Asheville, and so I have to take him out to dinner and hang out and talk to him. And anyway, <laughs> do my Alex Jones impersonation. <laughs> it sounds kind of like that,
3: yeah. <laughs> uh, so listening to the show and uh, just you know heard you talk about something that was just really creepy and really you know wanted to get you on to talk about it. And that is some things that you've been finding out about some disappearances in the Smoky Mountain National Park, which is not too far from us and definitely a whole lot, hell of a lot closer to you. And I uh, wanted to talk about some of those disappearances that happened. And also you had like kind of like a weird personal experience, as well as your brother Caleb had a weird experience out there, too.
5: Yeah, and that might be a good place to start with it all, really. I mean, uh, anybody who who spends, you know, a modicum of time, uh, you know, if you live in, uh, you know, a location like I do where there are are, are vast wilderness areas um, and designated as such, you know, in accordance with the national parks and and with, uh, you know, protected wilderness areas according to governmental standards, uh, I, I live maybe, guys, you know, maybe an hour, a little more than an hour. From the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, uh, and I'm just a few minutes from the Pisgah National Forest. Uh, yet yeah. again, in the opposite direction, I'm about an hour from the Linville Gorge Wilderness. And that
3: uh, was just there when I was uh, when the, when I was in Asheville the last time. I was in Linville Falls area. Yeah.
5: yeah, beautiful place. I mean, it's 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 a scenic location, and people would go there typically just for the scenic beauty. But there's also this story. This this um, you know this. This I would call it a mythology, really, but I mean it's not purely myth. I think that there's some some truth to it, just as well. But but whatever you want to call it, there's something that goes on in the Limbo Gorge that uh, is akin to Earthlight phenomenon, and this is known as the Brown Mountain Lights. And so, you know, all these locations really are very interesting, and they draw a lot of uh, they draw a lot of. Uh, Tension from from folks who are travelers and you know h- hikers, wilderness enth- the enthusiasts, and adventure seekers. But the um, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park specifically has become you know kind of an epicenter. Following the publication of books by one David Paulides, uh, the yeah. the author of the Missing Four One One books, it's kind of become an East Coast epicenter for strange disappearances that are associated with weirdness that goes on in the national parks. Now, of course, being an outdoor enthusiast myself, I've always been interested in this kind of stuff. But, you know, what you reference, of course, David Pilates has done a lot of research into. And um, and I had the, um, the fortune of meeting David um, about a month and a half ago in Baltimore, Maryland, at a, an, an event called the Fort Fest that was put on by Info, which, for those who aren't familiar with it, is the International Fortean Organization. And um, Fortiana, by the way, I should just say in the broader sense, again, most listeners of Conspiranormal will know what that is, but Fortiana is essentially the study of the unexplained, and that name is derived from literally a reference to Charles Hoy Fort, okay, the guy who, had, back in the 1920s, began writing books like Book of the Damned, Low, New Lands, books that sought to document reports of things that seemed to you know, occur kind of on the periphery or beyond of Modern scientific viewpoints toward nature and the world around us.
3: This is stuff like it raining frogs and fish and sheep squatch weirdness. Well,
5: actually, mostly sheep squatch, but,
3: right. but
5: but but there was a, there was a actually you know I mean Fort, in, as, as as early as 1920, had been visiting the New York Public Library, and he'd been gathering information about strange lights that that were seen in the sky. You know, again, the equivalent of the modern UFO report. Um. Fort was looking honestly at strange disappearances and things, the very likes of which we're probably going to talk about a good bit over the next hour or so. And so, you know, it makes for an interesting, you know, historical analysis of the data to note that here at a Fort Fest, an event named after an organization named after an individual who was kind of the progenitor of this sort of realm of study back in the 1920s, um, you know, it it was very fortuitous that I would meet David Pilates uh, and, saw a lecture he gave immediately before mine, I was talking about kind of Fortiana. You know, being a young guy, here I am speaking to a crowd of people who most of whom are more than twice my age, and I'm giving a lecture on Fortiana and the importance of studying the unexplained. Because my whole premise is that modern science is often very dismissive toward the serious study of the unexplained. And study of the unexplained doesn't have to mean that, well, whatever science says, we disagree, I am a very scientific thinker, and I'm a person who really tries to advocate scientific literacy. Um, in addition to you know literacy and things in, in areas such as psychology, history, literature, all these kinds of things. You know, be educated. You know, don't 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 be an anti-intellectual and a person who thinks that you're smarter if you simply exclude from your worldview the things that consensus reality. Um, is comprised of based on the hard work of individuals who've come before us who probably at the outset were just as doubtful as Fort or you or I or anyone who's listening to this podcast. So so here's David Pilates, and his background is, is very simple. He's a retired police officer. He was doing some investigation into things going on in the national parks, and he was approached by some individuals who said, you should look at the incredible number of unexplained disappearances that occur, and he began to do that. And in the United States alone, there were two entire volumes, two books that were comprised of his research into what has become known uh, colloquially as Missing 411, and disappearances yeah. that occur in the national parks. Now, there have been a couple that have been of particular interest to me, which we'll discuss a little bit later, and which David has gotten into, but you know, I've had my own experiences with this sort of thing, just as well, and when I say this sort of thing, I haven't gone missing, and I haven't found a person you know, who had been missing, but I've had some pretty creepy damned encounters in the, uh, in the, uh, Pisgah National Forest myself. <clears throat> and one that comes to mind specifically took place a few years ago. And this is the one that Adam, you were kind of alluding to there earlier. Right. I've been on a fishing trip with my girlfriend th- at the time, Antonia. And Antonia, you know, again, with all absolute respect, you know, is a, a very lovely woman. She is a person, you know, who is a model and therefore she is extremely attractive. And I don't say that just to say, oh, I'm hanging around with a model because, you know, Antonia, Remains to this day one of my dearest friends. Uh, we're, we're no longer a couple, but she lives in uh, in uh, Texas today, and is still a model, and she's still very active. As a matter of fact, she's even been active in the paranormal community off and on for years. And so, again, a dear, dear, dear friend of mine. And any opportunity we have to catch up and talk and, and compare notes, you know, from time to time, we do that. Talk. So, so um, not intercourse. Talk.
4: <laughs> so anyway, I was not. I was not leading to anything.
5: Listen, now listen, I'm serious. If I'm going to do this interview, you little, no, I'm I'm kidding. Don't worry, I'm just giving you (laughs) (laughs) that. See him turning white over there, people. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I thought you were getting raw there for a
5: minute. (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm not like that. Anyway, I'm sorry, guys, I was just having some fun with you. But But Antonia is the you know, very close, you know, confidant of mine. Uh, I have not compared, when I talk about comparing notes, I haven't talked with her about this circumstance. And actually, I would like to. Because this is one of those cases that after revisiting it in my mind, it just stands out as being extremely strange. But what I remember of the situation, and I'll tell you now, I I don't think that she was as aware of what was going on as I was at the time. Here's essentially what takes place. We had gone on a fishing trip together. We weren't very far from where we were living at the time. And we had parked outside of the Bent Creek area in the Pisgah National Forest. Um, we were on a, on a dirt road, just an unpaved road, way back out in the back country. And, uh, as, as we had, you know, and I like to get to these little out of the way kind of places because, I mean, anybody who's ever, you know, been in the back country, they know that all the real good, real good fishing spots, and you guys probably know this too, right? <laughs> the good fishing spots aren't going to be right out there, you know, two minutes from the road mm-hmm. where everybody's already fishing. You know, we had to go out in the into the country a good ways to find this spot, and I knew of one in particular. Well, Um, we parked our car and on this particular occasion, there was like a little game trail that led down into this, this little flat area where there were ferns and things growing and, and a lot of, you know, tall poplar trees and pine trees and stuff. So there was a canopy and everything. It was a very shaded area. And then this little game trail that led through this kind of, you know, flat area, you know, I'd say maybe 50 yards from the road down to the creek but this area between uh, you know of about a 50 yard stretch from the road to the creek you know spanned a, a, a long area that kind of followed the creek and which of course obviously the road followed as well and so we were meandering our way along because there were you know in different areas alongside the creek you had to walk a good ways to get down to them but there were really nice fishing spots down in these spots and so um, we were on our way to one of those locations, and as we were walking along, Antonio was behind me, and I, at, at one point, and guys, you you may know this, and I'm sure most who are listening have experienced this, you, you, the 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 archetypal proverbial feeling of being watched, right? right. When you feel like you know somebody is watching you, okay? And um, we got to a point where I had that that feeling, and it was really. I don't think anybody's ever felt that and thought, oh, cool, somebody's watching me.
3: <laughs> somebody's
1: yeah, right. watching me.
5: Yeah. <laughs> you feel comfortable. You feel good. Somebody's No, it's, it's not a comforting feeling. And so as we're walking along, I'm getting that feeling. And then I look up, and out of the corner of my eye, I see, again, you, you, you're used to seeing tree trunks and things like this, and there's something that's just out of the ordinary. And I look directly at what is a man rather than a tree trunk and he's wearing kind of these coveralls and this guy uh is is standing there and again when i say coveralls you know i would i would liken this to being uh if you went to an automotive you know shop if you went to a uh, to a garage uh you know where they do oil changes and things and you you know the kind of coverall suit you know the one piece suit that a guy they're mm-hmm. working in you know
4: like michael myers kind of yeah, yeah in truth exactly
5: okay. yeah yeah, yeah but he wasn't wearing a mask or anything like that. I think he was wearing a bill cap sure so this this fellow was wearing essentially a michael Myers type one piece you know automotive suit is what I would liken it to be, and then a, and a bill cap and I look right at the guy now again, this fellow is I would say between you know thirty and and forty five yards from us, so you know standing there in the woods this this proximity wasn't probably. You know, clear enough that I can look at this guy and I can tell you every detail about his face. But I look over and I, and as I turn and look at this guy, I see him very clearly in time to watch him duck down behind the shrub, probably some, uh, probably some laurel or something along those lines of rhododendron that he's kind of crouching behind now. And I didn't stop and I didn't go, "What's the guy doing over there?" You know, who's he? Well, let's go talk to him. No, I said, you know, Tony, let's turn around, let's get away from here, and. You know, she's saying to me, what, what are you talking about? You know, I, you know, we're almost to the fishing spot. And I said, no, turn around. Just don't ask questions. Let's get out of here. And we go back up the game trail and back up to the road. And I waited until we got to the car to tell her what was going on. From time to time, of course, you know, glancing over my own shoulder to look and see if this individual back out there. Um, he didn't appear to follow us. We never saw him again. But I'm thinking, you know, this is a fairly remote area. What is this person Doing, watching couples who are trying to find a fishing spot, and when he sees me look at him, he crouches down behind a brush, you know, or a thicket. These aren't the kinds of things that a person that, who's acting normally, you know, is typically going to do. It's right. extremely disturbing for us at the time. Well, that happened years ago, and it really put it out of my mind. And then I, again, you know, fast forward to the present. A couple of months ago, I'm up in Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm seeing.
4: Or not? Sorry. About that.
5: <laughs> that's
4: a, Sorry. That's okay.
5: So, so
3: Bobby will we be beaten after the show for that. You know, there'll
5: be a flogging. If I was over there, I'd have whipped all your asses by now. But anyway, <laughs> so, <it's a> fa- <laughs> fast forward to the present. <laughs> oh God, Adam, they're all going to think I'm just terrible. I'm really nice guys. I'm going to take you all to dinner. Don't worry, but. <laughs> One day.
2: So so, uh, did this guy, did he look like rough? Did he have dirt all over him and everything? Was he
5: dirty? You know, to be honest, I couldn't tell you those kind of things. And I'm not going to make up a story, you know, just to make it sound more, you know, interesting. I I couldn't tell you that this guy looked rough or if he looked, uh, you know, unkempt. All I remember is that the the, the clothing appeared to be either a uniform or some kind of a one-piece kind of a suit. And that there, you know, there there was probably some sort of a hat, and, and what I think the hat probably was was a bill cap. Um, but aside from that, you know, I could also tell you this guy. It didn't appear to be an old man. This guy looked like he was probably between the ages of maybe thirty five and forty five. I mean, you know, he couldn't have been couldn't have been older than you know in his late forties, but you know, was probably younger.
4: I mean, what if he was just out there? fishing as well. I mean, maybe there's a road on the other side somewhere. No, not,
5: not in this area. There wasn't another road in that area, and I wouldn't rule out the idea that there were other fishermen or people who were just fishing in that area, but I'm going to tell you something. This guy was looking right at us, and as I turned and looked at him, he ducks down behind these bushes.
2: Yeah. Right, yeah, that's <laughs> not normal behavior.
4: It really
5: isn't, and I've never been in a situation where I've been on a fishing trip where I saw another fisherman who tried to hide from me
4: well, maybe it lives up there somewhere, but it's on the park, though, right?
5: Well, you know, again, this area is fairly remote, given the the you know, I, and I say that relative to the to the to the rest of the location, because you know they're in the Bent Creek area of the Pisgah National Forest. This is all right next to Lake Powhatan. This is not per se a remote area. It's a frequent uh, uh, outdoor recreation spot. This location, in particular. If you follow the road, there's a back road that'll take you up around the back side of Lake Powhatan and up over the mountain, up under the Blue Ridge Parkway, headed toward Mount Pisgah and then eventually if you follow the road on down the other side, it'll it'll empty you out down in Mills River, which is on the other side of the mountain in South Asheville. And um, you know, in this area, this general area where this experience took place, again, this was this was remote in relation to Lake Powhatan and all these things by virtue of the fact that this was not the kind of area there in the Pisgah National Forest where people who are hanging out on the weekends are typically going to go. You're not going to see a lot of campers out in this area. You're not going to see a lot of, you know, hikers or bikers or anything like that. There may be other
3: spots one place. of the popular spots. It's, it's, spots. it's, it's not
5: yeah. one of the popular, easily accessible spots. Again, we drove way oh. up past Lake Powhatan, park on the side of the road, no other cars <laughs> anywhere around, keep in mind. We park, we get off, we follow a game trail down into this little flat that's going to lead us down toward the the, the creek. And, and again, in an area where we had seen no other cars and where there should have been no other people, very distinctly there's this guy who's watching us and who, as I turn in his direction, ducks down beneath a bush so as not to be seen, obviously trying to hide himself. And
4: it's definitely
5: creepy. I mean, it was extremely creepy. And I mean, I, you know, not to say that there's not something prosaic going on for whatever reason, this guy could have been out there. Was he a student studying wildlife and just didn't want to be seen? I don't know what the case was, but you know, when I'm in the forest and, and then I'll tell you this too. The other thing I remember is he seemed to be from the distance where I, uh, you know, uh, from which I observed him, which was, you know, at least, you know, a couple dozen yards, you know, I'd estimate between 30 and 45 yards. This guy seemed to be pretty tall. Uh, you know, when you're out in the woods, and especially, I think it, I couldn't tell you if it would have been more disturbing had I been by myself or, or having had my girlfriend at the time there with me. Because when you're by yourself, you're like, oh hell, great, I'm by myself and there's this creepo over here watching me. You've got your girlfriend with you or somebody else, a child, you know, and you think, oh my God, this person is obviously watching us, is acting, is behaving in what I would consider an irrational way. Or in an antisocial way, in a way that is not friendly. <laughs> and I've got this person with me and I've got to protect him. And I think that that's what I was thinking at the time, like anyone would. Um, but we got out of the, the, the situation very quickly. And, uh, you know, all it took was just turn back up the trail, go, don't ask questions. We got to the car and I explained what was going on. And she was pretty freaked out. And, you know, I don't think that we had any trouble sleeping that night <laughs> as a result. And frankly, after a couple of weeks, I wouldn't have even thought twice of it. I, I, I never thought of it again. You know, Again, fast forward to the, to the present.
3: Micah, yes. can, can you relay, because uh, I think it goes into this somewhat, um, can you relay what happened with Caleb?
5: Well, I certainly can. Uh, you know, And, and again, I'll, I'll put it to you like this. This experience of mine came uh, back to, to mind, and I started thinking about it again, after meeting David Pilates at the Fort right. Fest in Maryland earlier this year. Uh, where he gave a lecture about his popular series of books, Missing 411, which have to do with people who go missing in national parks. And after he gave this lecture and after he starts talking about the things that have occurred in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, I'm thinking, my gosh, you know, here we've got an epicenter less than uh, an hour from here. And I had my own experience, which seemed to involve a strange-looking person. And this is of, of particular importance because of the similarity to a case that we're going to look at here, which David Pilates and many others, White McCrary, a you know, former National Park Service ranger who had actually been involved in search and rescues for a number of years, many people have uh, looked at the case that we're going to talk about later, which involves the disappearance of a young boy by the name of Dennis Lloyd Martin who was never found. Right. But, but yeah, as we're talking about this, interestingly, I'm reminded of the case you know, or rather of the uh, occurrence that, that uh, Tony and I experienced years ago. And uh, and I, being the host of the Grayling Report podcast, and for those uh, out there, you know, who are listeners of this program who for some reason have never heard of the Grayling Report, I don't know what the hell's wrong with <laughs> you. You Check out com. This is the website for the podcast that I do each week. In addition to a radio program, and I have two co-hosts, and one of them is my younger brother who's also a research associate and an, art, and an artist, Uh, named Caleb Hanks, and then Tyler Pittman, who also is a sociology major and a producer of the program. And these two guys are my number one, you know, my right and my left-hand man when it comes to this sort of stuff. And after I uh, met David Paulides in uh, Maryland and I bought his book and I read the chapter specifically about the Great Smoky Mountains National Park on the way back from, on the flight back from Maryland, I told the guys I said look there is a case in this book and this is significant enough that Pilates said this was kind of what he built the entire missing 411 thing around the disappearance of Dennis Lloyd Martin and um, I, I called the guys and I said look you know we've got to talk about this and I want to kind of debrief you on Pilates research into this into this disappearance of this young boy and it was in telling that story to Caleb and Tyler that Caleb brings to, to uh, my attention he says you know God that just is so disturbing, and it makes you look differently at things that have happened to, 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 to you, you know? And uh, and I said, have you had an experience? You know, because I sure have. And he said, yeah, I certainly did, and it only happened within the last couple of weeks. Now, what happened to Caleb was literally, guys, within just a few miles where years ago, Antonia and I had had our experience. This was also in the Pisgah National Forest, and this was, if you follow 191 down and you go past um, what, what is known as um, the... Uh, Actually, there's the entrance to the Arboretum, which is part of the UNCA, you know, University of North Carolina at Asheville, which is on the property there of Bent Creek. But it's also across from uh, in the vicinity of between 191 um, Brevard Road and, and, and Long Shoals Road around what's called Sandy Bottoms. As you're traveling along 191 at this point, okay, you're getting near Bent Creek and you're, you're, the road is, is running parallel to the French Broad River. And there's an opportunity there right around the entrance to the Arboretum to get on the Blue Ridge Parkway, which will take you all the way up uh, depending on which direction that you go to Mount Mitchell or up into the area of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, where a lot of the, the kinds of disappearances that David Pilates has looked at in his research. Um, if you were to get on the parkway specifically and turn right right there after a couple of hours, you'd be right where a lot of these disappearances have taken place so it was in that direction. Caleb had gone one night <clears throat> and he's driving up in, and this is, you have to understand my brother, Caleb uh, is a night owl. I think a lot of people who are drawn to this sort of stuff, they, they, tend to be. And, uh, and often when he can't sleep at night, Caleb will go and he'll drive up onto the parkway and he'll sit and he'll stargaze or he'll just, you know, listen to music. And he likes being up and, you know, on the parkway by himself like this. Well, on this night, uh, in, in, in question, he had driven up onto the parkway. He's headed up toward Mount Pisgah, um, which is one of the tallest points you know anywhere in this region. And um, as he's driving, he realizes that there's a vehicle that's trailing him. I mean, running right up his butt, so to speak. You know, I mean, just coming right up behind him and really, really, you know, with the high beams on. So he thinks, okay, this person must want to get around me. So as soon as the next overlook comes up, Caleb pulls over to let this person by, and instead of whizzing past him, you know, and flipping him off, they follow him into the overlook, and they pull up behind him, and he thinks, okay, this is weird, so he gets back on the road, and he drives again, well, he keeps going, and he has a similar opportunity on down the road to get out of the way of this vehicle, which is aggressively tailing him, and he pulls off on another overlook, and this time when he pulls off, the car pulls up beyond the entrance that he turns into on the overlook, and, and, and typically these overlooks, they kind of dip off the side of the road, and there's an entrance and an exit, which could serve as either an entrance or an exit, depending on which direction you're coming to or going from on the parkway. Well, he pulls in on the one nearest to his uh, direction of pro, uh, of approach, and the vehicle pulls up beyond and comes in what would be the exit and turns around and faces his vehicle still with the bright beams facing him. Really? And the car, yeah, and the car just sits there illuminating Caleb's vehicle, and he's sitting there watching this guy.
4: It's like a movie.
5: Yeah, exactly. You know, that's what I'm saying. And he says, so I'm thinking, what is this person doing? Well, maybe it's just somebody who's wanting to sit there. It's not a park service vehicle. You know, it's just a you know, typical car. And he says that the door opens, and a guy gets out, and the guy starts coming toward him. And the guy is making some, some odd gestures with his hands. Um, it was very unsettling for Caleb. And Caleb said, I waited until I saw the guy get out of the car and start walking toward my vehicle. And as soon as he did that, I bolted out of the parking lot, back onto the parkway, and drove as fast as I could. For all I could tell, he hadn't followed me. But Caleb says, I pull up, and he says, I go up the road to the next overlook. I get out of the car, and he says, I keep a mic stand. We're both musicians. And he says, I I keep a mic stand in my vehicle with me. And he said, I got into the back of my car, grabbed that mic stand, got out, stood behind my car, and waited, thinking I'm going to have to face whoever this person is. He's terrified, you know. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And the car fortunately never comes back up there. But he was concerned because he said, not only was this person harassing me this night, I wonder how many people who go up on the parkway at night are being harassed by this individual. Who was this? What did
3: and I think he said like the truck was like an old old truck. You know, he grill.
5: may have, and I don't remember the uh. details specifically. But you know, he has talked about this on the Grailly Report podcast, and so we did an episode about this. And I'd, I'd refer your listeners uh, to that program if you know if you'd like to hear Caleb tell this story. But it's just so unsettling. And so, what is it about? And and unfortunately, you know, I could could try and make a big mystery out of it, but really I think it's as simple as this. This is something that has happened and continues to happen. People are looking for individuals that they can get in a compromising situation way out, away from civilization at night, you know. Um, People who are just bored, people who are sick, you know, who have issues, who are sociopaths. I don't know what the circumstance is, but I think that they're within a very, you know, short distance of, of, of one another's encounters. Caleb and I had encounters with, I don't know that I would hazard to guess it was the same individual, but with, certainly with people who were looking to mess with people who were far enough away from you know, from heavily trafficked areas that God knows what could be done, and it's really disturbing. And when you take that into consideration, when you look at the research that David Pilates has done with Missing 411, where people international parks... They vanish inexplicably, and they're never seen sometimes or heard from again. Then there are other instances where there are people who are certainly heard from and seen again. One woman who had gone missing a couple of decades ago in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park uh, was found after several days of searchers trying to locate her. She seemed disoriented, and after being discovered, all she recalled was being, as she said, tormented in the forest by a group of men. And they didn't torture her or anything like that. She said that they pursued her for days and that she never got a good look at them or saw them. But she said that what she perceived as being a group of men pursued her through the forest for days. And, and what's really strange is that she said on one occasion, she said that she found what looked like, you know, donuts or something that you'd find in a gas station uh, that had been left in a little hollowed out place on a tree as though they'd been left there for her to find so that she wouldn't starve. And she got the impression that whoever it was pursuing her for days on end had just been toying with her.
3: This is kind of like the ultimate game kind Weird. of thing,
5: you know? <laughs> it's is so disturbing.
4: Sounds like an inbred game. Uh, well,
5: you know, you think about, guys, you remember the, the movie, uh, what was it, Wrong Turn, I think?
4: Yeah, yeah. What, that kind of thing? I, have, I haven't seen
3: it. But
5: well, the, the, I guess, the, yeah. well, actually, well, maybe one of you guys could actually kind of tell us what the, the, the film was about. I mean, I could tell, but I am talking too much. One of you guys tell us.
2: It's it's been a while since I've seen it, but uh, I think it was kind of like The Hills Have Eyes. Yeah. Uh, uh, they, I don't I don't even remember the characters. I think it was a man and a woman together. Uh, they were just sopping the uh, wilderness somewhere on vacation, and uh, the, I guess they start getting bullied by the locals, and the locals are just these uh, crazy looking backwoods. Hillbilly <laughs> Hill, yeah, yeah. what's extreme extreme hillbillies
5: what's funny is that you know again this is the premise of of that film and you mentioned the hills have eyes which is a very similar premise mm-hmm. and unfortunately there are true stories especially from this region of western north carolina where I am. adam of course has visited here and he and i've gone out and had dinner and talked and everything and he's he's seen some of the the area uh you, there are remote areas where uh, you know where they recommend that you do not go. And uh, there was a, a tragic story a few years ago of a couple of girls who had who had gone quote unquote off the beaten path like this. And there were a couple of brothers who unfortunately were deranged individuals. And this isn't just an urban legend; this is actually a true story. Um, I think one of the one of the two brothers probably suffered from you know mental uh, issue, but I think that both of them were essentially sociopaths, and they were living in a trailer together out in the forest. And these two women uh, were apprehended by the two men and were sexually assaulted. And one of them, I believe, was killed. The other managed to either escape or was released and, of course, eventually ended up committing suicide as a result of the trauma that she experienced. And so this kind of thing, it's not just something that you see in the movies, and we cannot help but think about whether or not in real life this sort of thing actually happens out there in our national parks. Which, again, brings us to the research that David Pilates and a number of others have done in relation to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and not just that, but really, national parks all across the United States, and even beyond the the United States, because there's a new book that actually is North America and beyond that applies. Well,
3: Micah, Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of go to the story, one of the the most compelling ones was uh, a story in Cade's Cove, where the the boy I think was like nine years old, and he just disappeared like pretty much in broad daylight
5: yeah that's the one that we mentioned earlier which is Dennis Lloyd Martin he was actually six years old if I remember. you know it's yeah. funny because different accounts will tell you a different age but you know he was I believe six and a half years old this is the basic story of Dennis Martin and and I would agree with David Pilates uh, we talked only briefly about this report now subsequently following the the uh, you know the event in uh, Maryland where he and I both were speakers he gave his lecture we shook hands. We talked for a minute. I actually bought a copy of his book and um, and said, you know, we'll be in touch. <clears throat> and uh, he 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 re- he defines this, and he actually talked about this in his lecture and said it's one of the most disturbing cases, and really was the kind of the cornerstone for my inspiration in writing these these books. And it remains one of the most disturbing stories for me too. This is in essence what happened. It was 1969, and Dennis Lloyd Martin was the son of William Martin. And uh, it was Father's Day weekend. Uh, William, I think William's father, Dennis, and his older brother were all camping and spending Father's Day together in the Cades Cove area of the Great Smoky Mountains National Forest. Now, listen, if you've grown up anywhere around in these parts, western North Carolina, where I live, you know Cades Cove. And specifically, my dear friends Don and Marty Lewis, who are incredibly talented musicians in a group called the Sons of Ralph here in town, you know, when I was a kid, they would always they would always talk about, oh, you know, we're going over to Cades Cove to look for bears. Well, now keep that in mind, people going to Cades Cove looking for bears, because that will actually come into play later in this story. Father's Day weekend, 1969, Dennis Lloyd Martin and his father and his grandfather and his brother are camping at Spence Field. And there's another family that's camping there as well. And incidentally, they are also the Martin family too, and they've got kids, and so the two families...
3: That's strange. Yeah,
5: and see, this is the thing that Pilates, in his research, begins to note these sorts of things, these strange parallels. You know, make of them what you will, but you know, when you research this stuff deeply enough, I think inevitably you'll find this sort of a thing. So Dennis Lloyd Martin, we're going to refer to him as Dennis from now on, because I don't have to say his full name each time, but you know, he was, again, a six-year-old boy. His father, William, had actually said that he believed that his son was about a half-year behind Other students in his age group. In other words, in the language of the 1960s, Dennis had a disability, a learning disability. They were camping there together, and Dennis and his brother, and then the family from the other Martin family, decided to play a game. And there are different accounts of exactly how this went, but it, was, it wasn't quite hide-and-go-seek. The plan had been that the kids were all going to break up and they were going to run around the periphery of the Spencefield area and come back around and ambush the adults in, in just a game where they were going to jump out and surprise them. Now, according to William Martin, uh, Dennis had taken off by himself in the direction of the Appalachian Trail while the other children went together. And after about 45 minutes, when Dennis did not show up again, the family, and actually, probably in truth, both families who were present there began to get worried. Now, William Martin takes off running down the Appalachian Trail. He jogs about a mile down the trail to try and find Dennis. comes back, hoping, of course, as any father would, that his son would be there. And Dennis had not returned yet. So then he jogs down the Appalachian Trail again. This time he runs about three miles down the trail and comes back, and still no sign of Dennis Martin. And by shortly after 8 p.m. that evening... They had reported the missing boy. Now, this is where things get complicated because that night, essentially, a flash flood occurs, rain moves in, and as anyone who has been involved in a search knows, when there's rain, especially heavy rain, it, it greatly, greatly reduces the chances of being able to find a missing person. Why is that? Well, because there are a number of reasons. If there's rain, a person is more likely to hole up and try and find shelter someplace. But also, if they've left prints anywhere, the rain is more likely to cover the trail that the person has left as they've made their way through the forest. Now, furthermore, and further complicating the situation, Dennis is, of course, described by his father as being a quiet child who might not respond to searchers. But they built fires and things in the area, hoping that maybe he would be drawn to the light and come out and reveal himself. Now, a search ensues, which I think at its height involved probably close to between, you know, 1,500 and at the very most maybe 4,000 people who were just people who were involved in the area, people who were locals, good neighbors as they called themselves, Green Berets were involved. The FBI also, based out of Knoxville, Tennessee, had also been involved, and a special agent named Jim Reich had been monitoring the case. And with the concern that the National Park had about the disappearance of occurring immediately before the flash flood, they realized, depending on how cold it got at night, it was imperative we try and find Dennis Martin as fast as possible because he could suffer from hypothermia. He could literally freeze to death even in the summer months like this. So, naturally, everyone's very concerned about it, and it is, it is basically determined, according to the requests of William Martin, that anything about his son that is found in the National Park has to be reported back to him. Now, the search continues for several days, but the day of the disappearance of, of Dennis Martin, there was a man by the name of Harold Key, who, along with his family, had been a few miles away at a location again near Cades Cove, and the location was called Rowan's Creek. Now, Harold Key and his family stop, and they decide that they want to talk to a police or to a National Park off, uh, Park uh, Service ranger. Because they're just trying to find wildlife. Like Don and Marty, you know, that I mentioned earlier, these folks were looking for bears. They wanted to see wildlife. And this park ranger says, you know, if you guys go up onto this trail, you you hike a little ways up there at at the trail at Rowan's Creek, and you'll be able to probably see some wildlife. So Harold Key and his family go to Rowan's Creek, and they start walking. Now, they didn't know this at the time, but it was only within about an hour to two hours that Dennis Martin had gone missing. And as they're hiking up the trail, Harold Key described later what he and his family remembered hearing and, and described as a shrill, sickening scream. And they hear the shrill, sickening scream, and for whatever reason, I mean, despite being shrill and sickening, they continue up the trail, and it within just a few minutes, Harold Key's younger brother or, or um, uh, son who was with him says... Dad, look, there's a bear. Well, Harold Key said, that's not a bear. And in fact, what he described seeing was a quote-unquote dark-figured, rough-looking man on a ridge up above them who was trying not to be seen, who had ducked behind a rhododendron bush or a laurel thicket, something along these lines, and was trying, obviously, not to be seen.
3: Similar to your
5: experience. It was very similar, and I'm not trying to Uh, make a a direct connection, but I'm going to tell you when you're in the forest, when you're out in in a remote area and you see a person who is trying not to be seen, the difference between my experience and theirs was again, the best description given by Harold Key was it was a dark-figured, rough-looking man, and he was trying not to be seen. In my experience, this was a man who was very clearly wearing some sort of a uniform, maybe a hat, and he'd duck behind this bush, but yet much like the rough-looking man that Harold Key had seen in 1969, this was an individual who did not want particularly to be seen. The only other extreme difference was that, again, immediately prior to seeing this rough-looking man, Harold Key and his family reported the sickening scream, but they don't designate what the scream sounded like or what could have made it. They just said it was a shrill, sickening scream. Now, later I want to apply a little deductive logic to this and try and look at, you know, what the implications of that scream might be. But first, we'll we'll, we'll continue with the story that David Polites and many others have looked at, because it is indeed disturbing. What we do know is that once Harold Key and his family, and here's what they report, they say that they watch this man and that he takes off up the ridge and that he might have been carrying something over his shoulder as he disappeared. He gets back to civilization with his family, so to speak, and they learn about the disappearance of Dennis Martin, and he thinks, you know, maybe I should report something. So he contacts the FBI and says, look, we saw a guy out there in the woods who was acting like he didn't want us to see him around Rowan's Creek, and I'm concerned that this could have something to do with the Dennis Martin disappearance. So he contacts the FBI, and Jim Reich, the agent in the area based out of the Knoxville location, responds... And Harold Key apparently offers to take Jim Reich up to Rowan's Creek, where he had the encounter, and he says, no, I'm going to come to your house, and we'll talk there instead. And I think that probably David Pilates and many others would would assert that in this instance, what appears to be happening is that Jim Reich wanted to meet with him outside the National Park, because remember what was told to, to the father of Dennis Martin, anything that happens in the National Park with relation to your son, you'll be notified about For some reason, in all likelihood, the FBI didn't want to take the chance that they would come into possession of information that they would later have to pass along to the father of the missing boy, which makes it very disturbing for other reasons. And granted, that's speculation, but I think that's probably a likely scenario as to why that information was collected outside the national park, specifically rather than going to the location where Mr. Uh, Key could very clearly show where they saw it, what they saw. This is exactly the area where the man had been. You can maybe even go up there and try and find evidence of a person who had been stalking around up there on the ridge. Well, we'll never know exactly what really happened there. Well, I don't know that we should say we'll never know because I'm sure that somebody probably someplace or some three-letter agency probably has access to information with regard to the initial interview that was conducted between Jim Reich and Harold Key. Well, the search continues. Again, I mentioned that the Green Berets get involved. A lot of volunteers... Dennis Lloyd Martin was never found. He was never recovered. The child remained missing. Although, during the search, there were a couple of interesting things that were noted. And even in the National Park Service document that documents the disappearance, there are numerous mentions of psychics who supplied predictions about where they thought the boy would be found. Furthermore, In addition to the numerous, and you can actually find the document online, it's actually available via the, I think the Knoxville News website actually has the entire thing posted online. But in addition to psychic premonitions about where the boy would be found, there was also mention of a small boy's Oxford shoe print that was found within about three to three and a half miles of Spence Field. Um, and, of course, you got to keep in mind that Dennis Martin had been wearing Oxford shoes when he went missing, and the small boy's Oxford-style shoe print was found near the Pigeon River within just a few days while the search was ongoing. This uh, is held by many to be one of the greatest clues with regard to what happened to Dennis, but he was never found. He was never recovered. No one seems to know really what much to make, if anything, of the rough-looking man and the shrill, sickening scream. Well, David Pilates became very interested in this case, and of course, he traveled to this region. He interviewed not only William Martin Dennis's father, but also Dwight McCrary, who was the the National Park Service ranger who had been involved in the search at the time and numerous other searches after the fact. He spoke to both of these people, and there were some interesting things that were related to him during those conversations. And to make a very long story short, Dennis Martin's father when asked, is there anything about this case that I should know that, that, that has not been reported, William Martin said, well, do you remember Jim Reich, the, the FBI agent? he said, yeah, I know about Jim Reich, Paul e. says. He says, I know about Jim Reich, and he'd been the FBI agent and s- assigned to monitor the case. And they said that apparently at this time, William Martin said to David, do you know that he committed suicide? It is unclear why Jim Reich, the, the FBI agent, decided to commit suicide. Who knows? But he did. And then according to Dwight McCrary, the, the uh, author of the book Lost, and also, you know, again, the NPS officer or ranger who had been involved in the search, when asked about the rough-looking man and the shrill, sickening scream by David Polites, Dwight had said, well, there were wild men living in the Great Smokies at that time. But he made, but. <laughs> but he made very clear, he said, these were people like you or I who chose to live wild, who chose to live fairly in the wild. And we know that there have been wild men because the year before the National Park Service began carrying weapons to arm themselves, one of our rangers was attacked by a wild man in the forest in the in the mid to late sixties. And this was part That's this was weird. Yeah, and this was part of the reason that we began carrying weapons, you know, and arming our officers. So it's a very strange and convoluted story, and even Dwight maintains to this day if there were two things I wish had been observed and looked at more carefully, it would be the Oxford shoe print of the boy and the story of the rough-looking man. But there was a third element that didn't come to light until years later, and this is perhaps the most telling, which I'm, you know, I, I noticed that David Pilates, for whatever reason, didn't mention this in his book, but there have been other news sources who have carried this aspect of the story, and that is that Dwight McCrary had talked about the fact that there had been an illegal ginseng hunter who years later reported finding the skeleton, portions of the skeleton, including the skull of what appeared to be a child. Again, right around the same area that the Oxford shoe print had been found, but you've got to keep in mind was miles in the opposite direction from Rowan's Creek where the shrill, sickening scream and the rough-looking man experience took place. <coughs> and according to the ginseng hunter, he said, I found the remains of a child and i thought at the time i found this that it might have been Dennis Martin but he didn't make the report initially because of course of the fact that he was illegally hunting ginseng well by the time that the, what he was doing
3: yeah right
5: and so by the time that the report was made <clears throat> when the national park service and they did as i understand investigate they tried to comb the area the rough area where they had said that the child's body and remains had been found there were no remains found and we may never know whether or not that was indeed an accurate telling of what happened or if there was indeed a child's body that had been found and if that in any way related to Dennis Martin. But I want to draw a couple of interesting, and to me this is, this is where we get into kind of applying a du- uh, you know, a, a bit of deductive logic here. We have to take into consideration the fact that if the child died within the first couple of nights, if the rain came down and right there within maybe anywhere from a mile to two miles of Spencefield, if Dennis Martin succumbs to natural occurrences, and the intervention of an individual or a kidnapping or something along those lines had not occurred, if that child died as a result of exposure or whatever, then we have to look down the mountain at Rowan's Creek and say, okay, Whatever amid, whatever was seen there by Harold Key and his family that produced this quote-unquote shrill, sickening scream was not the child because the child in this scenario was not related to this person. So what, if any, is the significance of a shrill, sickening scream followed by the appearance of a rough-looking, dark-figured man at Rowan's Creek with full knowledge of the fact, according to Park Service Rangers at the time, that there were wild men living in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park around that time? Okay, conversely, if there was any kind of a connection between the appearance of the rough-looking man and the disappearance of Dennis Lloyd Martin, had it been a child's scream that was heard, this is unclear, and these are things that we don't seem to know with regard to the Dennis Martin disappearance. But what I do know is that, you know, I think like David Pilates has said, it's it's a very disturbing story for me, too, being someone who lives in this region— knowing that it's remained unsolved and knowing the different number of possibilities ranging from an illegal ginseng hunter who may have found a child's body to the possibility that a wild man or something along those lines could have actually kidnapped the child. But we have to take into consideration all of these aspects. And again, I fundamentally would ask if the child was not involved with a kidnapping, what role does this rough looking man in the scream that this man presumably had a, produced. What What does that play with all this? And why was there a man out there trying not to be seen, but nonetheless screaming primally at people at Rowan's Creek in 1969? Or, if indeed there was some sort of a connection, was that not a man's scream at all, but instead a child's scream? And did that have to do with the disappearance that had occurred only within the last two hours of Dennis Lloyd Martin?
3: Uh, Micah, isn't there some reports of um, drumming being heard in the forests in and the, forest in the- in
5: the National Park? I don't know about other people's experiences, but um, when I have uh, visited the Great Smoky Mountains National Park years ago, Caleb and uh, Brian Irish, a friend of ours, and I had spent some time camping uh, just outside the Cherokee uh, Indian Reservation. And we had traveled up into the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and specifically we had hiked along a trail that leads to what's called the Kanadi Fork. And uh, late, 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 uh, between eleven and um, and midnight one evening, as we were up there, um, we did hear a rhythmic pulse uh, that was emanating from down in the valley below us, which which we would liken to a drumming. But uh, but I couldn't tell you that, and I wouldn't necessarily assert that it was a drumming. To me, I, I believe that this was some sort of a natural sound, uh, you know, maybe some you know water crossing uh, you know a log and, and hitting a rock or, or, or something along those lines but it reminded us of a drumming and that's you know if you if, and, and now granted there may be other people who' have described the same sort of a thing I, yeah. I don't know that there are other reports but I know that in my experience you know hiking in that area uh, we have heard what what sound like drummings but you know again I, I would attribute those to natural causes.
3: Bobby are you glad that you did that you're doing this interview? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, (laughs) I just I just got back from uh,
4: the Buffalo River, uh, actually about four hours ago. Oh, really? And oh yeah, yeah, camped out and did the wilderness thing, canoed down, checked out some of the beautiful scenery out there. But uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting. Like when you look up on the cliffs, you know, just thinking you see things out of the corner of your eye, possibly or. Possibility of some creeper dude, you know, in a family full of cannibals living up there in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny because hey. I,
5: I had a friend years ago, and, and I got to tell you, you know, for folks listening at home, you know, I really try to be a, you know, can I say bullshit on this podcast?
3: Yeah, it's totally okay. Wrong.
5: Okay, I, I wanted to ask before I did, but 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 I try to be a no bullshit kind of person, <coughs> and I am the kind of person who likes to entertain, not pure bunk. But I like to entertain possibilities, especially when you have eyewitnesses who describe seemingly strange phenomena. I tend to gravitate toward there being a very, if not mundane, at very least, a very plausible everyday solution to most of the strange phenomena that people describe. But that does not mean that I rule out the possibility that there are indeed genuinely anomalous things that happen and that people accurately report and describe based on their. You know their experiences. Now, for me, you know, and I don't mean to get off on my soapbox here, but you know, the problem I have with modern skeptics, and we've talked about this before, Adam and I especially. Modern skeptics they want to have you believe that there's nothing weird and nothing unexplainable that happens. In other words, our understanding, our mastery of science, is such that we have a full understanding, or at least full enough, that we can explain every seemingly unexplained or anomalous occurrence. Okay, And we can furthermore prove that it was something mundane or relatively mundane that people simply misinterpreted. I don't think that our understanding of science is so close to mastery that really we can do that. And I'm a person who always tries to fall back on, if possible, the mundane or the conventional or something that science, when properly implemented, can help us discern or understand. And that's just simply not always the case. We cannot always we can always apply science and we can always attempt to withhold you know bizarre speculation and try and apply a logical kind of a deductive process to understanding mysteries without taking it to the lunatic fringe you know and that's what i try to do and so i do not think it is bad to entertain the possibility that there are truly unexplained mysteries and to me nothing about the dennis martin disappearance is paranormal it's downright creepy But what it seems to point to is that either the the child simply got lost and within just a few miles of where he went missing, succumbed probably to natural causes, the elements as they were, and maybe his remains were actually discovered later, years later, by a ginseng poacher. But the other alternative we have to look at, and, and I think that a lot of people when they hear about a wild man, they start thinking Bigfoot and things like this, which we could discuss a little bit later if you want, because... The Great Smoky Mountains National Park does have reports of, whether you want to call them Bigfoot or feral humans, whatever the case may be. There are reports of that kind of thing in that area, which I have. Sheep squash? I'm sorry, sheep squash. Sheep squatch too. I
4: will tell you what, <laughs> <laughs> and
5: and all these things are are areas of interest that I've had long before I met David Pilates or or read his books. You know, and I've looked into these things, and I don't think that one can help but knowing the history of the region to take those things whether it be folklore, or if you're someone who is the of the persuasion that you take those things very literally i think i'm somewhere in between but i take those things into consideration nonetheless when i look at the plausible components that may exist with regard to why people go missing in national parks and i know that david pilates does too and i i really 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 respect him as a person who has had a vocal interest in Bigfoot in the past and says to hell with people who want to ridicule those who are interested in this, but I keep that separate, Pilates that is, from my research into disappearances in the national parks, even though some of the disappearances do seem to point to something that I would hesitate to go any further than saying merely that it's anomalous and that it seems well, to involve another party. Um,
3: Luke? Luke has some, like, from where he's from, like a like an odd kind of folklore, like a folklore place.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I remember mentioning it on another show. I, I don't I think it was one with Adam Go Riley. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, because he was talking about uh, Charles Manson. Well, you, you've heard of uh, Short Mountain Distillery, right?
5: I haven't, actually.
2: Oh, okay, well... Uh, I I guess it's just like one of these new legal moonshine distilleries, you know, since it was just legalized recently. Uh, But anyway, Short Mountain uh, is this kind of community that was down the street from where I grew up in uh, Noreen, Tennessee, you know, out in the sticks. Yeah. And uh, my brother was telling me a story about how uh, Charles Manson's uh, family, because Apparently, I don't, you know, I don't know much about the guy, but he was on the run and uh he was going up through middle Tennessee to try to make it to Kentucky. And uh Short Mountain was one of the places that he was hiding out at and he had some uh followers and family there. Um but uh when I was growing up, we called it Hippie Hill. Uh, Short Mountain Distillery wasn't there, you know, that that's kind of a new thing. Mm-hmm. And uh or uh, Hippie Hollow, my bad, Hippie, hippie Hollow, and um, everybody at school that could drive was like, you know, we're all teenagers and stuff, kind of like uh, daring each other, yeah, I dare you to go out there to Hippie Hollow and, and get close to it, you know, <clears throat> because uh, the, the word on the street was there was like a community, you know, off in the woods still remaining all the way back from, uh, when, when did the whole Charles Manson thing take place? 60s, 70s? Uh, late 60s.
4: Yeah, late 60s.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, so apparently, uh, there was still a uh, community all the way from back then. You know, and We're talking uh, uh, late 90s, like early 2000s, uh, when Hippie Hollow was still around. It, it's gone now, obviously, because it, or it became Short Mountain Distillery. But uh, uh, what I was hearing from people is that There was, uh, well, anyway, (laughs) ah. people in the woods. Yeah, there's, there's people in the woods. You have to excuse me. I'm really scatterbrained today.
5: That's okay. (laughs) But I I will ask you actually, because even though I'm a guest on the program, you know, my, my research brain never turns off. Try to remember and, 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 and and remember where you're going. Uh There, there's a community Uh you say of people.
2: Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll go into the story about my brother, uh, he went out there one night. They were, he was drinking with his buddy, Daniel and, uh, they were in Daniel's truck and, uh, they go down the, the, uh, it's in the dark too. You know, it's pitch black out there. There's no street lights anywhere. Um, uh, they're, they're heading down this gravel road. That's, that takes you like directly into hippie hollow or close to it.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, they saw this big, like bearded guy come out and put his hands up and stop the truck. Like he stood right in front of the path of the truck and he stopped him. And, uh, he just told them to go back, you know, and <laughs> they they were pretty shaken up by that. So, yeah, they, they turned the truck around and took off. Um, and then I, I heard some friends telling me uh, at school that they had watched uh, watched them, like, dancing and, and uh, playing instruments and stuff like that. And it was, had, like, a fire in a drone circle going on. But, you know, I, I don't know if I could believe that.
4: Those crazy moonshiners, yeah. <laughs>
5: well, it could just be hippies camping in the woods, but I'll tell you this. Very uh you, you've probably heard of the rainbow movement.
4: That rainbow I think my little sister's uh, with that or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, mine she's, too.
5: I, haven't, I actually haven't got hippy. a little sister, but no. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> right around the area where Tony and I years ago, where she and I had been fishing, where that incident took place, there was a contingent. Uh, literally of of what people locally referred to as rainbow people, but basically, you know what you might also call less formally hippies, that would camp in that area and they would camp all summer if they could. And so, yeah, the Bent Creek National Forest, I'm sorry, the Pisgah National Forest in the Bent Creek uh, area decided to limit the number of days people were allowed to camp because the quote unquote flower slash rainbow people were were, were basically abusing the ability to be able to spend several days at a time, and they would camp up in that area all summer long, and so they ended up having to limit how much people were allowed to camp, or how often they were allowed to camp in an area so that they wouldn't just squat all summer. Yeah, I can tell you certainly that the individual that I encountered did not appear to be a hippie-type guy. I mean, if anything, this guy seemed, you know, the antithesis of that, Right, uh, which is... You know, strange in itself, but um, you know,
3: we uh, these are the same people. I think that like uh, cry over dead trees in the forest, (laughs) (laughs) like
5: me. Yes, we we cry when the (laughs) trees.
3: And
2: and then uh, while you were talking about the uh, the stories in the Smokies, uh, it made me think about the Finders cult, and we had a discussion Uh, about that on on one of our shows. That's
3: weird. Uh, uh, You want to explain it? Uh. Well, I mean, briefly, this is something I heard about. I think, like, uh, Whitley Strieber was talking about it, called the Finders Cult. And it's these kids that were found, I think, in a Washington, D.C. park. It's been a while since I've studied it. But I think they were found, and they were all disheveled, and they were all dirty. And uh, they traced them back to this uh, warehouse or something. And I had to look at the information again. But they were all, like... Um, they were all brainwashed, and it was this like, kind of religious cult that had this uh, had some kind of connections to the Republican Party. Really strange stuff. Yeah, and, and uh, the the guy who was in charge of um,
2: kidnapping the children, the FBI let him go or something. like that. Yeah, they like let that. him go. They like,
3: questioned him and then let him go. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Interesting.
2: I'd have to
3: look that up. We'd have to do like a little like a section of the show on that because it's. It's it's bizarre. I think it happened in like 1986 or 87. Yeah, I think 1987.
5: Like yeah, and I'm looking at some some information online about this real quickly. That uh, the New York Times carried a story, but more importantly, it was this excerpt from the Washington City Paper that read, "In appearance, the finders mostly middle-aged men, always in dark suits. Yeah, wouldn't be out of place managing a local funeral home. But the behavior of the handful of adherents was people, or has people, wandering." whether they arrived by flying saucer. Townspeople say the finders constantly walk the streets, following people home and taking extensive notes and pictures. They often appear at local council meetings, never saying a word, but simply observing the scene. At other times, they plunder the visitor's center with brochures, maps, and local travel guides, and they haunt the courthouse, securing land deeds to find out who owns the local real estate. But the story was is that, and this is what the New York Times reported in 1987, was that police officials had said that six disheveled children found in Tallahassee, Florida, might be the offspring of members of a little-known cult, but the officials said that they had not ruled out the possibility of a kidnapping. These children purportedly linked to the finders, which had, of course, as we heard already, had been some sort of a connection to the, to the local townspeople uh, for some time prior to that just as well. Right. So, right. it's yeah, it's a bizarre story, which I had not heard about previously, but I'm looking at this right now, and... Uh, yeah, that's pretty bizarre, especially when it says, "Okay, men in dark suits who very well may likely have landed in a flying saucer, as opposed to arrive from the hollow earth." Who knows?
3: <laughs> like I was watching this—I uh, was watching this thing on uh, on TV yesterday, something like called "Monsters, Myths, and Legends" or something like that—and uh, they were talking about the Melon Heads. Yes, of course. You ever heard of the melonheads? Yes, I think
5: I actually was one of the consultants to that program, and they'd called me and asked me about that.
3: Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah,
5: I've, yeah, I've heard that story, but you know, I think the gist of it is, you know, the idea that there are some sort of strange, you know, genetic experiments that have been carried out on, on children. You know, one of the more interesting things that um, that the uh, producers, when they were producing that program, had, which I've never seen the program by the way. Um, that's my terrible flaw is that, you know, I'm contacted by all these television programs and they'll talk to me for hours on end on the, on the telephone and getting information about different things about tele- uh, television, you know, ideas for the television programs. And I never end up watching the show <laughs> and very seldom if I ever do see the program is what's represented on the show. Anything similar to what I've told them on the telephone. <laughs> but as far as I understand about the melon heads, I mean, this is some sort of a genetic experiment, you know. Presumably that or inbred children.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the same kind of similar thing, you know, people will drive down this lonely dark road and then all of a sudden a guy gets the you know, they see the melon head get out with a with a gun or something, or there's a dead deer across the road and the melon head is eating it, or just you know, just uh, something strange. Head, because they have huge heads. Well, you know, uh. the
5: way I look at this You look at my experience, my personal experience that Tony and I experienced years ago, and uh, you you look at uh, what my brother has had happen uh, even more recently, and you look at the way that stories like that could lend themselves to a myth involving a real monster. When, in fact, and I remember when I was looking into, at the very outset of my interest in the Dennis Lord Martin disappearance, I uh, told Tyler Pittman... um, we were here in the bunker one night, and uh, we were we were preparing for one of our broadcasts. And I said to Tyler, I said, "You know, as a man, and I'm talking about myself here. Obviously, we we're reflecting, you know, self reflecting here from what I said. You know, as a man who who has made his life uh, an interest in searching for monsters. There's no monster scarier than the kind that walks on two legs. And the monster, of course, I'm describing is the human monster. When
4: you're talking about sheep squash again. <laughs> <laughs> sheep squash.
5: Now yeah, boy, Bobby. Dang old, dangle. Listen, the thing okay. is, is that, <laughs> that that whole mythos of a sheep. We look. If you guys want to talk about sheep squash, bat squash, goat man, chicken man, owl man, moth man, we, we, we we'll get into all that. Right. And as a matter of fact, I recommend strongly that we do, but. But I'm going to tell you, I think that the basis of that archetypal encounter with some sort of an entity that walks on two legs on a dark country road is based in the kinds of experiences that my brother and I have had and that, for God knows, maybe led to the disappearance of that poor child in 1969. And, I, I, and I'll tell you one thing. My own personal experiences I mentioned earlier, didn't lead to any sleepless nights, but I, <laughs> I've had many sleepless nights. Trying to understand the, uh, the the Dennis Martin case because it's tragic if that child got lost, but if that child went missing as a result of the actions of another individual, and if we still don't have the full story, but a kidnapping or something occurred, you don't have to be a parent. You don't have to be a no. You don't have to be a psychologist. You don't have to be a doctor or a police officer to find that disturbing. And and I don't know what. I, I don't know what in, in my mind could be more frightening than a child that disappears under those kinds of circumstances. And I'll tell you, I've had many, many, many sleepless nights after I started looking into that case. I mean, that one, oh, God, you know, that that, that, that was the one that, you know, that, yeah, and I think it will remain the one that really is truly the reminder of how disturbing this area of interest can be for people who have a heart and a conscience it's disturbing stuff, but anyway, we can talk about bat squash now.
3: Yeah. Well. By the way, and I uh, don't, I don't, and I
5: want to be very clear too. I don't want to, I don't want to be flipping about that. And when I say we can talk about bat squash, I'm not, you know, undermining or, or or trying to be comedic here. I want people to understand, and I think that this is, you know, again, God bless David Pilates because, you know, his research, and I've I've talked about a couple of things in relation to that case that I noticed he didn't write about in his book, and he hasn't talked about publicly. Uh, and I'm sure being the thorough researcher that he is he has his reasons for talking about the elements the way that he does being a systematic guy with his approach being a former police officer I'll tell you what you know no matter what difference there may be in the way that he approaches a research or or, or an investigation and in the way that I do the one thing that fundamentally unites us and brings us together and I, and I know from talking with him you know David is a good guy he is a really good guy And fundamentally, if there's, and there are plenty of things, but if there were nothing that we had in common, one thing that would remain would be that we're both individuals who have a heart and who are absolutely concerned and disturbed by what's going on. And it needs to be taken seriously. And I want every person who ever listens to this interview to remember, when you're out there hiking or kayaking or camping in the woods, be aware of your surroundings and who or what may be around you. Because it's not all hearts and flowers and hippies and rainbow people. I wish it were I wish it were. Yeah. But 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 there there's a lot more to this and, and, and frankly sometimes we, we you know we need to remember that darker aspect of all this too because that's the only way that we can protect ourselves.
3: Well, you know, we're not talking about like the sheep squatch or the bat squatch or you know, we're not talking about some monster that may or may not exist. You know, we're talking about people either sick or there's some kind of weird, different culture. And we're just talking about people that are out there in the woods and just like they're, you know, people are capable of doing just about anything to to each other, just worse than worse than any monster possibly could. That's
5: right. And, Adam, I think that that's the whole point is that, A, we have to remember that before we go leaping to crazy, you know, judgments about what's going on, oh, these, you know, the aliens are abducting people out there in the National Forest, you know, or Bigfoot's <laughs> coming and abducting. Right.
3: It's the it's the puck, Wudgie. Uh. <laughs> yes,
5: yeah, exactly. I mean, look, folks. Again, for a guy like me, for folks like you, and for people like those at home listening, who are interested in this kind of stuff, I don't think there's any creature known to humankind more terrifying than the human, the kind, the monster, as it were, that walks on two legs, and that's the kind of monster we're talking about here, which I think often. In an archetypal sense, kind of serves the basis for these kinds of legends and things, which maybe to depart, not to undermine what we've talked about already, but to depart maybe from the seriousness of the discussion that has preceded, we'll talk a little bit about now if you guys want to, and if you've got time.
3: Uh we got a little bit. A tiny bit. Maybe about, about like seven more minutes. Seven or
5: minutes. We can we can cover seven different monsters in seven minutes. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm a time lord, aren't I? <laughs> <coughs> You're a Hoovian. Oh, no, no, no I, don't, I, don't, I don't watch that stuff. I'm, just, I'm a master of time. You're wasting time, by the way, so go ahead, go what is, monster.
2: What did you say a minute ago? Puck Wedgie? Puck Wedgie. Don't worry about the what
5: puck is Wedgie. That? Look the other way. Pretend he never said that.
3: Oh. Gotcha.
5: Instead, ask about the Hodag.
3: The hodag. What's the hodag?
5: I'm glad you asked. The hodag was of frontier legend, a creature which had the face of a man, the tail of an alligator, the body of a hog, and was allegedly something that would literally, you know, attack frontiersmen, especially in the in the rural parts of the American Midwest. And the story was that if you found a hodag leaning against a tree while it was sleeping, that if you cut down the tree while it was sleeping, that the hodag would fall over and couldn't get back up, and then you'd catch the hodag. <laughs> Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Which, <laughs> who makes this
0: stuff up?
5: <laughs> Hi, I'm just, I'm just really, don't the yeah. messenger here. <laughs> but, you know, these are, these are legends and stories from folklore. Okay, Mothman. You know, I know you. We keep talking about sheep squatch and all this stuff, but really, I think sheep squatch is really just kind of a bastardization of the goat man and the goat man story. It's been properly debunked, it, to my way of thinking. Actually, there was a story of a curly-haired, crazy guy who'd walk up and down the, the the railroads in some sort of a locale, and I don't remember the actual locality. But he'd carry a an axe handle that he would use as as a uh, um, kind of a like a walking stick. And uh, and the story of the sheep, uh, well, the the goat man seems to emanate from that. Owl man is a story of another winged cryptid purported to actually inhabit the uh, the the, uh, the uh, United Kingdom. The Mothman is one that is of actual interest because there were actual newspaper articles. John Keel reported a number of stories. There were numerous witnesses that actually described seeing something around Point Pleasant, West Virginia, in the late nineteen sixties. To me, of all the reports of purported folkloric—and I say folkloric in heavy emphasis—because I think the most of this stuff is just folklore, and we have to really be literal and think about this. I hate to bust anybody's bubble, but really. Let's let's be logical about this. In likelihood, most of these things really are just urban legends. The, the Mothman story seems to be more than just a, an urban legend. But understanding what it actually was and what was the inspiration of what people claimed that they saw, which I in no way think is actually what they saw, understanding all of that is key to understanding the the, the myth and the mystery of the Mothman. And if we go all the way back to that first encounter, do you guys remember the earliest encounter uh, of the purported uh, Mothman cases? Do you remember the first one that actually happened?
3: Uh, Was that the one? Well, I mean. I've just seen the movie. That's it. The one that I can think of was that the people were coming out of their house. And I remember something about like the lady dropped her baby. Well, there was one that she saw. It.
5: That that we'll get to that one in a moment. You yeah. that was one of the early cases. There was one that preceded it. There were two, actually. As a matter of fact, you got to keep in mind. Okay, let's set the state.
3: This is the one with the dog.
5: This actually was not the one with the dog. No, this was.
3: Yeah.
5: Well, there may have been a dog associated with this one in some right about. I've never heard about it's November. Life. It's middle November, nineteen sixty-six, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. First of all, we have two men at Clendon, West Virginia, who are digging a grave, and they claim that they see a humanoid sort of a shape or something flying low, okay, to the ground and, and lights in lights in a in a group of trees. And they t- say that the thing literally flies right over them, but they aren't sure exactly what this is. Okay, this was in November, I think, uh, November, uh, probably around November, but at the 12th, okay. So let's say three days later, and I happen to know this one specifically, November 15th, 1966. Roger and Linda Scarberry, as well as Stephen Mary Millette, and this is the famous, and this is what's by many referred to as the first Mothman report, the Millette and Scarberry encounter. They talk about seeing a large creature whose quote-unquote eyes glowed red in the car headlights in front of them. They obviously observed this thing. As they were driving. They were in the general vicinity of the famous TNT plant there in West Virginia, and said that they had actually observed a large flying creature with ten foot wingspan. And yeah, one of the reports had been that this entity had actually been holding something in its arms, or maybe it had been consuming something that resembled a dead dog.
3: Right. And there was a guy before that that had, had encountered, it had an encounter, and his dog went running after whatever it was that he saw. Right.
1: Exactly.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that, again, what was described okay, as a large flying man or some sort of a man-like beast, and if I remember correctly, I think that uh, the report of the uh, of the, the man-like beast, I'm, I'm trying to remember where first that, that was reported. I'm, I'm sure that the descriptions of this winged creature, of course, were, were written about in John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, the most famous book that was written about this. But the Pacific Stars and Stripes newspaper had actually carried Mary Heyer's article about this, which included actual quotes from Mr. and Mrs. Scarberry and Mister uh, and Mrs. Millette, the two young couples that had been traveling near the TNT factory. I decided, to, being the geek that I am, to dig up that original article. In no place in that article is there any mention of a winged humanoid in that first article. And furthermore in the famous retelling of the story when the thing chased them and they drove incredible speeds to try and get away, and they said that the thing was flying along behind them and kept pace with the vehicle. Right, right. They did go to the police later and report what they'd seen. But the next day when they were interviewed, the article that appeared via the Associated Press, I presume in a number of newspapers, but I read it in the Pacific Stars and Stripes, reported that the creature pursued us. It was a clumsy runner. And they described the thing following them on foot. Interestingly, the Millettes and the Scarberries later would describe, and only later, that the thing had actually been flying after them. And presumably, I would say, later being after other reports of a winged humanoid were being reported there in Point Pleasant. I'm not saying that there wasn't something that pursued them that night, but it's strange that they would initially say that it chased them on foot and that it was, quote, a clumsy runner. And then later, and it had wings and flew after us. Now, I don't know what the hell we're supposed to make of that, but I know what John Keel later on began to think. He said that it was clear that there were reports we were dealing with that dealt with a large bird, and then that there was something else that was actually moving on foot that probably people were seeing in the same vicinity, and that the culmination of all these reports contributed to this growing mythos, which we recognize today as a mothman. But I think that we have to take into consideration that, unfortunately— And my skeptical side comes out to say the fallibility of the human senses, especially sight and what we think we see when we remember what we think we've seen, has to be taken into consideration when in a newspaper report you say that something chased you on foot and it was a clumsy runner. That's a very distinct description of the the method in which this thing was actually chasing them. They could have said, yeah, it chased after us and it was running. It was a clumsy runner. There was something awkward about its gait. Something about it seemed really strange. And then later... The same witnesses say, and yeah, it flew up into the air and followed us flying after us. Make of that what you will, and I know that we're running short on time, but when it comes to stories like Mothman, the thing that I would tell people at home to take into consideration is let's not toss the babies out with the bathwater and say, okay, this is all rubbish, but let's maybe consider taking a second look for those who are willing to dig deeply enough and find the actual details and see what the real story was, and it's very, very, very different. From this.
3: Well, it's no, it's no less mysterious, you know. It's no whether less it's somebody mysterious. flying or it's uh, somebody, or somebody running next to the car.
5: Yeah, it's no less mysterious, yeah. but nonetheless, what is reported as a quote unquote Mothman, even John Keel began to doubt later in his years. I doubt very highly the idea of a Mothman, like so many of the writers on the subject have reported you know, and who have who have tried to help build this mythos of guys. Come on, put the bullshit aside. Let's really look at what was going on. If, indeed, there was some sort of a red-eyed monster chasing after cars, if you want me to take it to the lunatic fringe, if I were going to entertain any kind of a fantastic pilot, <coughs> before I would entertain an inter- interdimensional you know, being that was seven feet tall and yet somehow had a ten-foot wingspan that <laughs> defied the laws of physics and carried this thing actually into the air... I would say there was something more akin to a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot. But even that's a bit of a stretch to the logical mind. And so I say we have to be very careful in looking at the way that we interpret what people were reporting that they saw at the time. I'm convinced people saw something, but this idea and this mythos that has grown around a mothman is highly unlikely to me, based on what I've read. And I would challenge any 14 researcher to look as deeply as I have, and some of them have looked more deeply, but let's be honest and say, okay, you haven't found the same things. And if you haven't found the same things, you're not a good researcher. If you have found the same things and you're denying them, well, then <laughs> why are we cherry are you, are we are we cherry picking data just so that we can sell books? Come on, guys, really. There was something that happened, but I don't think we have the full story because nobody seems to want to have an honest discussion about it. Let's have that discussion, but we'll have to do that on a, <laughs> a separate podcast, I'm afraid.
3: Gotcha. You know, you might make some people in Point Pleasant mad because that's like their tourist industry now. Is, you know, the Mothman. tours. That's what that's what grabs people to you know gets people to come there. It's the whole that's Mothman. Why they're they're, tourists come out there. They're tourists. Well,
5: you know what? So to people who have been thinking about visiting Point Pleasant before, you'd say, "Oh well, Micah's being a you know a dick again, and and now we don't want to go up there." No, go up there. Check it out. You know, study the folklore but know that the story that's being told is, in truth, a bit different from the story you think you know. I'm right. not trying to to, to you know, to steal people's sacred cows. I'm just trying to say that what you thought was a cow might actually just be a sheep, or it maybe even less than a sheep. It could be a frog or a mouse. It's still interesting, but guys, let's be honest about what we're talking about, and let's look at these stories and look at where the facts actually take us and come to an actual factual determination based on what those eyewitness reports and maybe a bit of knowledge of human psychology and observational <laughs> inconsistencies tell us about the way that people interpret strange things, especially if they're concerned, if they're frightened, if they're under stress and the sorts of things that probably the families of, uh, Roger Scarborough and Steve Millett probably were on that night in November of 66.
3: Absolutely. Well, Micah, thank you so much for coming on. It's been, uh, quite interesting. It's always um, my
5: pleasure, guys. You know,
3: very, uh, very informative. Uh, very creepy, too. hmm Uh, extremely creepy. Yeah. I maybe want to go in the woods anytime soon. too. <laughs> hey, Definitely but, not the smoke. But
5: next time you guys come visit me in Asheville, um, Adam, I've already made, uh, provisions that we're all going to go rent a cabin in the Great Smokies, and I'm going to scare the living shit out of you guys. So let's... <laughs> I'm
2: down. Yeah, well, used to... I you have, have to watch, uh, Wrong Turn and The Hills Have Eyes one and two first before
3: you even go. Well, I'm just right. talking about
5: storytelling. We're going to build a big fire. Tell oh, them some down. stories, but if you guys really want to get out in the woods and go hiking, we'll do that too.
3: <laughs> are you going to put some? Are you going to put some donuts in a hollowed-out tree for us? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a
5: plan. Yeah, I'm go to a Mexican restaurant and run my mouth all night. Even more terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> all
3: right, Mike, well, we'll stay on the line. Uh, we're just going to close out this segment. We'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. All right, It's the First time we're doing something here, a little different. Uh, we're doing a have one of our sponsors here. We got uh, Mr. Joe, who's been on our show a few times before. He was on our 50th uh, show uh, party show, and uh, he's a sponsor of the company called Biggie Frame, and uh, he he's here to talk about uh, some of the things that he is doing in uh, paranormal research and. Uh, has a some things that he wants to talk about and get people interested in so Joe welcome to conspira normal yet again
6: yeah nice to be here Adam I want everybody to um, to check the link below Adam's gonna put out a link uh, we're trying to promote our technology called hit hidden intelligence tracking you'll be able to analyze your video in a new way it it'll show motion of light it'll show the the amplified light that's in the room and it doesn't distort any other part of the video. Once once that is d- done we'll send you back that video. You'll you'll pretty much send us a regular video and we'll send you back the amplified result and you'll be able to um, step through it one frame at a time and see if you caught anything interesting and it doesn't necessarily have to be paranormal if you were robbed or if you want to even find out how a magic trick was done, watch a magic show, and then look at the video. This stuff will, will notice um, very minute movements and color changes. So it, it's it's really it's a strong program. We recommend you guys try it out. It's it's free for your first two downloads, and we'll charge. Um, a small fee after that because we actually have humans doing the processing. They have to um, download your video and put it through the process, then send it back to you. Pretty can, easy to do.
3: Can you talk about the technology behind it?
6: Yeah, it was originally um, developed for the medical industry. It's uh, MIT had a hand in developing it, and they have some links under their, their website and their school on, on some of their work. Um, we've, we've made it better. We've actually, um, tuned it in for, um, looking for, um, more amplified results through light. So I think you guys will be interested in that. Um, it, the technology is simple. It's, it's pretty much just a math problem that they developed that looks at the light and doesn't destroy the, um, rest of the
3: scenery. And uh, wh- what is it that uh, you're primarily looking for when you're when you're looking at these pictures?
6: Um, we're looking for proof that consciousness exists. You know, like like people without bodies. We um, we're getting pictures of um, ladies, and um, we're getting pictures of angels. We think we're definitely getting pictures of strange-looking animals or aliens, and that evidence is posted on, on the link below. You can get to it and look at it. And, um, this is all legitimate. We want you guys to send us your videos and see what you get in them too. And, um, maybe this might be a new awakening for, uh, the paranormal world and it'll maybe help out the rest of the world. I don't know how it'll help people out knowing that there's ghosts in their house all the time, but, um, at least it's validation that this is not um, this is not something like superstition. You know, we're actually getting real proof on camera.
3: And Joe, how do you know? Uh, just to kind of play devil's advocate here, how do you know like what you're seeing isn't like pareidolia or just like your your mind making up images? Some of it is, of
6: course, because you can go outside right now and look at. The grass and see pictures in it, but um, what's interesting about the video is you can just take a video of a blank white wall, then analyze the light that's coming back, and you'll see stuff take shape and leave the the image. So I don't think it's it's your mind matrixing anything because it'll it'll take shape and leave it it's like looking at a different world. This is like a microscope for video. So like people um, refer to microscope looking at bacteria, like you can't see it with your normal eyes until you turn the microscope on it. Then you start seeing little things move around. So to me, I don't think we're making microscopes up either. And this this technology is just using the data that's already present in your video. It's not really making anything up. Now, if your mind's making it up, um, it's possible, I think, but some of it is really hard to explain. Then um, that's why we need the public to send us videos. You'll be able to actually send us a video of something that you did, and we don't know what you asked for. You know, maybe you asked for your grandma to show up. Now, if she shows up, um, I don't think it's your mind making it up um, maybe she really did show up on camera for you, so it's worth a try, I say, to have everybody experiment and to figure it out more.
2: I don't really know what to say, I mean, it pretty much sums it up for me, I understand. Well, okay, well, what's
3: kind of, what's the best, uh, what's the best evidence that you've gotten?
6: Um, some of the best stuff I've gotten, I really, I deleted it because my hard drive was full and, uh, I'm, I decided to start keeping track of this stuff because I didn't believe it myself but um, the latest best evidence is posted on the internet right now you can see it on some of the still shots we have I think the best is yet to come and this is when this new technology called 4k comes into effect we're gonna get four times the resolution on these cameras that we take video of and the 4k TVs are coming in so whatever we're seeing in the next year is going to be, um, I think, mind-blowing. It's going to be four times better resolution. And, and if it's nothing, we'll actually see more, um, I, I, guess, I guess we'll prove it right or wrong with this technology. So I think the best is yet to come.
3: Well, how much? How much is it to uh, for people that they want to get any more information? And also, how much is it? To, how much does it cost to get these, these process processed? Um, it doesn't cost
6: anything right now. We're doing it for
3: free. There's a um,
6: there's uh, an iPhone app coming out pretty soon called Hit Hidden Intelligence Tracking for the iPhone. You just take a video with your iPhone and send it to us, and we'll process it and um, Google Drive it back to you. Um, eventually we'll have to start charging if we get too busy. That's our problem is we might not have enough people to, to help out. But right now it's free to just to get interest. So send us your video whenever you can get a chance. And they're just 20 seconds of video. That's all we need.
3: Well, Joe, I want to thank you for coming in and uh, being, a, being a part today. And uh, everybody uh, will have on our show notes, we'll have a link to um, Joe's technology for y'all to check it out. And uh, I we'll thank everybody for listening, and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal.
4: Get back in your cage! Ember is better than white bread.
3: Alright, so so uh, we' love back. to hear it's been a few hours since that interview I'd love just a little bit of uh, anybody's input on what we what we just heard about uh, rednecks out right. in the woods I know Bobby you got some things you want to say
4: no I mean yeah uh I mean, my whole take on that is there's psychos everywhere and there's right. crazy people in the woods. And when you mix inbreeding and people that don't make it out to society, (laughs) then bad things can definitely happen a little bit more. And just coincidental, it could be the fact that uh, they're inbred, or it could be a wild man on acid in the late 60s (laughs) uh, attacking people um, or sheriff's deputies. uh, Well, the part that
3: I found really strange was talking about how the... um, Park Service knew that there were wild men out in the woods. Yeah, that happened. Man. That that That's really, that was really weird to uh,
2: me. Not me, man. I, I can understand because, like, that, that's a huge, that's encompassing such a huge area of land. You
3: yeah. know,
2: and, and uh,
4: of course there's going to be wild people there, you know. But I don't think they meant the same wild man. Like, he was talking about wild man. He was talking about crazy people attacking people and murdering people and... and Whereas if it was a quote from, you know, if it was verbatim, you know, a quote from a park ranger saying that, you know, we know of wild men that live out in the country. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. of course.
4: You know, they're living so off the land. So we
3: talking about your normal, everyday, like, hillbilly that's living off the land. Maybe he's got a still out there. But, you know, it happened in Cades Cove at one point. That was a big part of a big place for bootlegging, you know, back in Prohibition and even like- on. Are we talking about like actual guys that are like feral human beings that are living out there in the woods that um, are maybe nobody's ever found or, or really seen yet? They maybe know that those people
4: are out there. Are we talking about hippies? <laughs> Were they raised by wolves? Uh, like what do you mean nobody knows? I mean they gotta have they gotta have like family and and people that have that are mountain people, I mean, they yeah. learn how to deal and they don't see other people from, you know, and mm. so, if, if, per se, if I was a mountain man, you know, and I lived, lived in the mountains mountain, mountain, and, mountain. uh I wore a poopy suit and I saw a couple and, yeah, I'll try to hide too, you know, yeah. I mean, but, you know, it could be a psycho scouting them out, you know, you never know, I mean, sounds like there's a bunch of wackos out there in Western North Carolina.
3: Yeah. Yeah. For sure, remote, remote parts of
2: uh, I'd, I'd say, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like Kentucky and Arkansas has like a lot of the the state is just uh, what's what am I looking for? Still not up with the time, not current, not
3: modern. Yeah, kind of yeah. behind the times. Right. So yeah. I mean, anywhere in Appalachia, you're gonna have people yeah. that are living off the land. I mean, I think you made a statement one time. We were watching some. You were watching some kind of documentary about. This um, the family in Kentucky. The family in Kentucky or West Virginia or wherever it was, <laughs> Luke, blue and you, people. And you said something like civilization yeah, could be like what? Wa- civilization could be wiped out, and these people would never even yep. know. They yeah, would, they would. They would have no idea that nothing has happened to them.
2: It, that was a super interesting. I watched that several times too, man. Just, I mean, it's just
4: self-contained unit. Mind blowing. They, yep. they don't vote. They don't even know that. You know, I have relatives that were in the Civil War. And uh, they tried to file for pension after the Civil War and didn't realize that they were in the state of North Carolina they were filing for pension in Tennessee because well, they were on the border you know I mean they had always known but they didn't know where the state line went but apparently that's how they got kind of duped out of their whole pension was because they Nobody said that they were in the wrong rain, right because yeah. it was so mountainous out there and rural, in the middle of nowhere
0: the
4: woods. Yep. So I he, need to, I need to learn how to play a better banjo. <laughs> that's, that's on my to-do list. it'd Be like a nine-year-old i on playing the banjo.
3: Well, tomorrow morning I've got uh, Gerard Williams coming on. We're going to talk about Hitler possibly living in, living in Argentina. Sweet. But so maybe Hitler is actually he could have been living out there in the woods. He could. Uh, he could. I, mean, <laughs> he, I mean, you know, he could live lot out there. In the so, wait. What? Still with still children and if Hitler was still alive How old would he be right Well Hitler That
1: definitely isn't well, then, alive anymore Well that's what I'm his, saying uh, like His thesis says has living Hitler
3: Argentina. Living in Argentina And dying in 1962 So uh, he's not saying That Hitler is still alive okay. But Hitler would be Probably somewhere in, you know, Over he, 120 well, years it's old It's not relevant right now, now in, I
4: right. you said That he was living in Argentina in, Unless no, he then. met some kind of like I'll debunk that one right away <laughs> Hitler would have to be 135 well, that, that, that
3: he That he lived <laughs> in Argentina Maybe yeah, he I met like more. an
2: Asian Zen master dude And he taught him like You know how to live 200 yeah, years you, you, to, through yoga You
3: never know the well, he, could be, he could be down there with his brain stashed in Antarctica Right
2: <laughs> He's hooked up to a machine that Makes him talk and his brain's inside of a tube <laughs> Hanging out with Walt Disney <laughs> yeah. That's right
3: uh, Walt Disney's head uh, Well thank Little you guys be Well thank uh, Micah for coming on Thank you guys for being here And uh, I guess we'll just go ahead and close it out. You're welcome. And uh, we'll have uh, this show and the next show posted at pretty much the same time. Word up. Thank you guys for listening to... Gunspirator! I want to be
4: your dominated love slave. Can spank me when I do not behave. Smack me in the forehead with a chain. I love feeling dirty. I love feeling cheap. I love it when you hurt me. So dry.